back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's now time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School Broadcast. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Mike M3 Rosansky, coming to you on this Monday, the 23rd day of January in 2023. Hope you all had a great weekend or having a great start to your work week or whatever you're doing this week, or at least trying to have a good start to your week after what was, I'm sure, a very difficult weekend for Giants fans or Hell, any of the four fan bases that team was eliminated from the NFL postseason. It was a long weekend. It was a long last couple of days for you. And if you know, if you're a Giant fan, you're almost happy that you had the buffer of Sunday before having to go back to work, go back to school, whatever it may be that you're doing. On this somewhat dreary Monday afternoon, because you know it's it sucks when you're eliminated from the NFL playoffs. You know, more so than any sport, because there's a finality to it. You know, going in, you're either continuing or your season is over, and you got to wait seven months uh, to start again. Unlike the other sports where it's a playoff series, best of seven, best of five, you have a, a little bit more time to digest it. In the NFL, there's a finality to everything. It, all of it is sudden death, and when it happens, it can be heartbreaking. And you know, if you're a Giant fan today, that's how you feel, because two things in this world can be true. I'm not typically one who likes that idea or believes in the idea of, oh, if I told you back in August that your team was going to win nine games, make the playoffs, win a playoff game, and get a division round game against the Eagles in Philadelphia, not only would you think I'm crazy, but you would also be happy by that and you would live with the results. I don't typically don't believe in that theory because I, I've always been of the mindset you have to adjust your opinions, adjust your mindset, your expectations as time goes on, as you get new information during a season because you never know who could get injured, who could be added, who could be taken off of a roster, how things are going to play out. But two things can be true today if you're a Giant fan. You can be ecstatic by how the season went, but extremely disappointed with how it ended. Because Saturday night was a cold, hard dose of reality. That the Eagles are miles 
ahead of what the Giants currently are. Even if the Giants had game planned and came in 100% prepared, even if they had the greatest week of practice of all time, they just talent-wise, do not match up with the Philadelphia Eagles. If you took these two rosters, came into Saturday and said, to hell with uh, what team each guy plays for. We're going to have a draft based on position. There'd be very few times where you're taking a giant ahead of a Philadelphia Eagle, if any. I you're not taking the quarterback, even as great as Daniel Jones has played all over him. You're not taking uh, uh, Jones over Hertz. You're, you're not taking Saquon Barkley probably over the Eagles running backs, especially Miles Sanders. You're not taking any of the giant wide receivers against over the Eagles wide receivers. And I think that is the biggest thing that got exposed on Saturday night, beyond the fact that you have linebackers that are missing tackles left and right, you have a secondary that none of these guys will probably even make the practice squad of the Eagles. Meanwhile, you're looking on the other side of the field and you're watching James Bradbury, who was one of your players just last year, make an interception in the first half. And you know that in his mind, he was savoring. He was salivating as that ball was heading straight to him. Uh, could not hold back his excitement. The fact that he got to pick off the Giants in a playoff game after they cut him loose for no other reasons than they were in salary cap hell, thanks to Dave Gettleman. And just all the way around, you look at that game from probably the third drive of the game, second drive by the Eagles. You knew how Saturday night was going to go. It was just a matter of how badly it was going to end. The fact that the Eagles marched down the field, an Eagles team that the, for the last month, let's face it, we had a lot of questions about, you know, mainly based on the injury to Jalen Hurts' shoulder, based on the fact that they did not have Lane Johnson out there due to the abductor injury and couldn't run the football without him or Hurts for this last month and even struggled at the end just to clinch the one seed and get that first round bye in the, uh, the postseason. But we saw that when this Eagles team is at full gear, when they have all their crew out there, the Giants are, uh, have no answers for them. The Giants cannot compete with the Eagles. And that's okay. It doesn't, while it's a disappointing end to your year, it doesn't take away from what you learned this year. In fact, it, it probably taught you a, a lot of things because I think there was a lot of you know, misconceptions, maybe people getting carried away with themselves after the win over Minnesota, which you don't want to take that away. You don't want to say now, I actually saw one idiot on Twitter saying that, oh, I'd rather miss the postseason than get blown out like that, which to me is it is a as dumb a take as you can have. That, that was coming from someone whose team never even makes 
the NFL postseason, whose organization is more of a laughing stop, more of a uh, pile of crap than the team I root for in the New York Jets. As a fan of the Jets, if you told me I win a division round a game or win a wild card round game and they get blown out in the division round, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that would be a sucky way to end the season. But I made the playoffs, made strides in a positive direction compared to where we've been for the last decade plus. Sign me up for that after the last 12 years have gone. And I'm sure, yeah, well, you don't want to get blown out before the season. Any Giant fan would have signed up for this because you were unsure about the quarterback. You had a rookie head coach. You had a rookie general manager. Well, you've got answers on all. All three of those fronts this year. A general manager who was dragging guys off the scrap heap just to fill out this roster, especially at the wide receiver core. And he gave enough of these mismatch kind of pieces to a head coach that was aggressive, a head coach that was willing to try creative things that didn't just go by the book, didn't just go by what statistics told him, and coached with his gut, unlike what we see a lot of football and baseball coaches and managers do these days, inspired the this group of guys that, let's face it, half of these guys are not going to be playing for the Giants, or at least not going to be starters on the Giants next year. Inspired them and got them to play above their talent level to get them to nine victories. And there were some questionable things that Dable did on Saturday night. I can understand somewhat of his decision to go for it on the fourth down early in the game. But fourth and eight on the 40, yeah, you want to be aggressive. You realize that you're the less talented team and you've got to figure out a way to somehow strive for stride, match the Philadelphia Eagles. But fourth and eight on the 40, after your quarterback just got tripped up by one of his offensive linemen, got sacked on third and three, was very much a risky play for that time of game, especially when later on, when they're down by three or four touchdowns, he's not going for it on fourth and six at his own 40. When you clearly need to fight your way back in the game, in the second half, he wasn't going for it on fourth downs. And this game, because of the Giants' lack of talent, because of the fact that the Eagles just ran the football right down their throats got away from them very quickly. Jalen Hurts didn't run the football a lot in this game, but did take some hits, did show that he was healthy enough to bounce back from those. And you saw what having Lane Johnson back out there did for that ground game. After averaging about 75, 80 yards a game on the ground the last three games, the Eagles were finally able to get back to their bread and butter uh, with the zone reads um, throughout this game, led uh, by Gaineswell and uh, Miles Sanders. Even had, you know, I, I almost feel like this was the ultimate middle finger by Nick Seriani, who's quickly becoming an unlikable figure, even for someone who has no rooting interest for or against the Philadelphia Eagles. When up by 21, 
We see for the first time in this game, Boston Scott come in when the Eagles are in the red zone. The, the, the only thing this guy does is score against the New York Giants. It, it, it's amazing. He does nothing against the rest of the league. He has now, if you count this touchdown, has 18 total touchdowns in his career. And 11 of them are against the New York Giants. And I've, I've never seen something like this. It's, it's the weirdest, quirkiest thing that you're going to see. But Boston Scott made his presence uh, early in uh, this game. And pretty much put the Giants and Giant fans to sleep by halftime. But it shouldn't take away from what was a great year compared to the crap fest that you have to deal with for the last decade. Now, I got annoyed with some Giant fans calling uh, what they've, quote-unquote, been through the last decade miserable because if you extend it out a little longer, since I graduated high school in 2007, I would sign up for what the Giants have been since then. The fact that they won two Super Bowls in that time, the only team that's done that more is the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick-led New England Patriots. To then go a decade where you made the playoffs only once, went through three coaches after Tom Coughlin, uh, three rather unlikable, no personality, grumpy head coaches before you found Brian Dayball, who is a player's coach, but at the same time, while he gets the best out of his guys, expects a lot out of his guys, you found your head coach going forward. And I think you found your quarterback going forward in Daniel Jones. Is he ever going to be Mahomes, Allen, Burrow, Lamar Jackson, if he could stay healthy, Justin Herbert? No, he's probably not on that level. Although, I would like to see what he does if you can get some actual receivers out there. Because let's face it, the guys like Richie James and Isaiah Hodgins, they were nice stories. They were cute stories this year, but they were scrap heap players. These, these are guys that at most should be your third or fourth wide receiver. You got to go out there and get real wide receivers, whether it's trading for a DeAndre Hopkins or using your first round draft pick on a wide receiver. If, if you're lucky enough to get one of the guys out of Ohio State or uh, J Quinton Johnson from TCU, somebody along that line of thinking, hell, do both, draft a wide receiver and trade for DeAndre Hopkins. Huh? What, if he can do that without giving up uh, your first round pick. But you got to get this guy improved weapons because with improved weapons, he's a a winnable quarterback in this league. He's somewhere in that 12 to 15 quarterback range, and you can win with that. You can make deep playoff runs in this league with that kind of quarterback, but you do have to make other improvements on this team. I mean, the linebacker core no, was missing tackles left and right in this game. Uh, you got exposed in your secondary, and it was made even worse when you're watching Bradbury um, and Slay make plays on the other side. And your offensive line outside of the left tackle position at times looked like turnstiles, especially Evan Neal, who was overmatched a lot of this game, especially early on against Hassan Reddick.
So there is work to do when it comes to the Giants. But that shouldn't take away. And, and I know you're disappointed today. I know you're sad today if you're a Giant fan. But that shouldn't take away from what was an exciting season. And, and sometimes the unexpected seasons are the most exciting seasons. Now, no one thought the Giants were going to win nine games this year. But it shouldn't take away from the joy you had this year the happiness that you got out of winning a playoff game in Minnesota, who was a very, let's face it, fraudulent 13-win team. And you know, now you have reason to look forward to next season. Now, you can't go, like I said, improvements need to be made. You got a lot of cap. You got 11 draft picks. So you can't come into next year with the same core, if you want to call it that, of this roster, because you won't win nine games again next year. Your schedule is going to get tougher going into next year. And the, you expect, you know, since you're going to have a third place kind of schedule, those other third place teams uh, throughout the NFC to look a little bit different, look a little bit better, especially since you're likely going to have to face the Detroit Lions on next year's schedule. But there's reason to be excited. You know, while you're disappointed about the blowout loss, it isn't a excruciating loss where it's like, oh, it's the end of something. Where it's like, oh, we had this group together for a long time. We don't know what's going forward. Excruciating losses are what happened to the Bills. Excruciating losses are what happened to the Dallas Cowboys. Those are teams that had expectations. Those are teams that have had their core group together for a while. And now with the salary cap and maybe some disgruntled players, maybe some injuries mixed in there, you don't know what you're going to be going forward. So yeah. Heartbreak, disappointing ending, but it's not the end of something. It's hopefully the beginning of good things to come. And as a side note, I don't know if it will make my friends, family, or any listeners or viewers of this that are Giant fans happy. But I'm going to be standing right there side by side with you on Sunday and throughout the rest of this postseason, depending if they get by the 49ers rooting against the Philadelphia Eagles. Not because I got anything against Jalen Hurts or any specific player on that team. Nick Sariani is just an ass. Let's face it. I mean, it's one thing, you know, how he used Boston Scott on Saturday night. But you're up by 27 going for a two-point conversion. Then how he's over the top staring at the camera uh, as it's going down the Eagles' sidelines. Uh, taunting the the Giants players and fans, or after the game calling Jalen Hurts Michael Jordan, comparing that performance to MJ. He's, unless you're the most diehard of diehard Eagles fans, he is a very unlikable figure. And I guarantee that's something Brian Dable is going to save in the memory bank. Or at least I would, you know, as a person that doesn't forget anything, that doesn't forget even the slightest slight by anybody. That's going to be remembered by Dayball because there will be a time because of the salary cap, because of uh, draft position, that the Giants have as good 
or maybe even a better roster uh, than the Eagles during the crossing paths of the Nick Sariani, Brian Dable errors, eras in New York and Philadelphia. And I'm sure Brian Dable, even as humble a person as he seems to be, is going to use that as motivation and look, look back at Nick Sariani and say, all right, we won't forget that. We'll remember when the, the tables turn and we're the ones getting the last laugh against you. So I'll be right there alongside you, Giant fans, rooting against the Philadelphia Eagles this coming Sunday. And if they are so lucky to get by the 49ers and get to Super Bowl Sunday in Arizona. All right, a lot I want to get to today. Give you some thoughts on the other three division round games, including don't think I forgot about you guys, Dallas Cowboy fans. Oh, no, no, no. You lasted one le- week longer than some people expected, but oh, we knew how the ending was going to go. It was just a matter of time, just a matter of time on how it ended. So give you thoughts on that, the injury to Patrick Mahomes, uh, Bills Bengals, mixing some basketball, uh, some baseball thoughts with a big day coming up in Major League Baseball tomorrow. So a lot to get to through this uh, hour here. Glad you guys could join me this week. So as I tell you each and every week at this time, please sit back, relax, help. Put your feet up on the table if there is one in front of you. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. You thought I was going to forget about you, Cowboys, didn't you? I told you so. I told you it was going to come to an an end at some point. I told my co-worker Ishmael. I told every Dallas Cowboy fan that was willing to listen to me that I know. Enjoy it for now. But it's coming. Your end of your season is coming. And while it's very easy, Dallas Cowboy fans could take the low-hanging fruit route could come at me and say, oh, but your team doesn't make the playoffs. How can you talk? No, I, I heard that a lot from my coworker Ishmael over the last week as I razzed him for, for being a so-called Cowboy fan, yet betting on the Bucks to beat the Cowboys last Monday night. He's saying, oh, you shouldn't even be able to give opinions on the playoffs since your team doesn't make the postseason. I'm like, just wait. All of you Cowboy fans with this we them boys nonsense that come at me every August saying, hey, you know, we're going to win the Super Bowl. Here's how we're going to do it. Whether it's my my old buddy Jeff Frost, whether it's other Cowboy fans that I know, mostly the guy Cowboy fans, the female Cowboy fans are mostly quiet um, by and large part. But all of you with this we them boys attitude that think that the effects of the Herschel Walker trade still hang over this franchise when, as we know, that ended a long damn time ago. Troy Aikman, Michael Irving, Emmett Smith, as much as they'd like to, they ain't come walking through that door. Jimmy Johnson, not coming walking through that door. This is the Dallas Cowboy team that Jerry Jones runs like it's a damn video game, like it's a, a 
the prize that you get in your Happy Meal at McDonald's rather than trying to put together smart things for a successful championship hopeful franchise. I told you it was going to come to an end. It was just a matter of if it was last Monday or if it was going to be last night in Santa Clara, California, as it turned out to be. And listen, you give the Cowboys a lot of crap because they came to play. Their defense came to play. Their defense deserved a better fate, a better outcome, especially with how dominant Michael Parsons was in that game. Michael Parsons, excuse me, with how dominant he was early in that game, with how that secondary didn't have a lot of deep shots taken against them along the sidelines, did get burnt up the middle by George Kittle a bunch of times, but what can you say? That guy is just a freak. He's a beast of a player, can play for my team any day, especially when he's making catches that are bouncing off his hand, bounce off the helmet, and then catching it with the fingertips to uh, set up the 49ers' lone touchdown last night. Cowboys deserved a better fate, at least on the defensive end. But you, once again, had the same problems that have ailed this team all season long, with Dak Prescott being too turnover-prone, especially you know, after what, Look like was a gift of a second down uh, play given to him. Comes right back and throws an interception that, let's face it, it could have been picked off twice. Well, completely blows any momentum that was built off the previous touchdown drive. You have Brett Maher uh, missing another extra point. And let's face it, that was a missed extra point. We we could talk about all day long to the cows come home how it was blocked at the line of scrimmage. Please, if that defensive lineman didn't get his big old hand up there, that was going completely to the left of the left to upright and probably going into the fifth row of the stands somewhere and everyone would have been laughing at Maher even more after the miserable performance he had in Monday Night Football uh, last week. He was the reason why... Mike McCarthy decided to go for it on fourth down so much. And I don't, listen, while Brock Purdy wasn't great, I've heard a lot of people say he was outstanding last night. Please, uh, he, he was good enough. He didn't make any mistakes, but he also wasn't dicing the Cowboys' defense. He made plays when necessary. You know, with the pass to Jennings along the sidelines right before halftime that set up uh, uh, Robbie Gold's field goal uh, with a second left. Did show you know, a bit of a rookie moment there where he's throwing the ball uh, with five seconds left and is lucky that that guy was standing there on the sidelines to touch it rather than it hitting the ground. Otherwise, the clock would have expired. But he had that play to set up a, a 50-yard field goal by goal. Then you have the pass up the middle that was a great play by Kittle to set up McCaffrey's touchdown. He made plays when necessary. But you saw a lot of stupidity from the Dallas Cowboys throughout this game. Will it be the pe three penalties on that one drive? And, you know, people talk about with the penalties with the Cowboys. It's not so much, to me, the total of penalties they have. It's when the penalties are happening. It's, you have three of your seven penalties on the night on one drive that – Maybe with the way your defense was playing, could have held them to a field goal. Turned out to be a killer. That and losing one of your most explosive players on offense in Tony Pollard. Your 
by far your best running back, uh, making you guys a one-dimensional team for the rest of the game. It was kind of a dead man walking situation. And now the Cowboys go into another offseason wondering what could have been. Another offseason and another season ending that leave anybody who's not a Cowboy fan smiling because of how obnoxious their fan base uh, tends to be. Now, on the AFC side of things, even though you're you know, much like the Giants, if you're a Jaguar fan, you're disappointed by the way uh, your season ended with the loss in KC, you have to hold your head up high if you're a Jaguars fan. Because I thought this team held themselves respectable on Saturday afternoon. You know, they, they weren't blown out, especially with how uh, it looked early on with how Mahomes and Kelsey were able to do anything they want. The, the Jaguars had no answer for Kelsey th- this entire game. Uh, when the the Chiefs weren't running the football with Pacheco. It was a, an easy uh, dump off up the middle to Kelsey, who has, we knew how great he was coming into this season, but he's turned himself into an unguardable beast this year. He's just, he's becoming like a fine wine. As he's getting older, he's getting better, which is freakish to, to even think about. But, no, that if you're a Jaguar fan, you got to be happy about how uh, Lawrence looked in this game. He did show some moments late in the game, you know, with uh, the interception in KC uh, territory that could have cut uh, the game to a one-score game at that point. Then you have the Jamal Agnew fumble. Uh, it at the six-yard line that kind of killed any chance of maybe a late comeback there, especially with how hobbled Patrick Mahomes came. And that that's something that is to watch for not just the rest of this game, but the, the rest of this week. Because I've never heard of somebody that overcomes a high ankle sprain in eight days. I've never heard of someone as athletic as Patrick Mahomes is as great as he is, just shake off the effects of a high ankle sprain. And that that was disgusting to look at when in the first quarter he got ta- uh, double tackled there by Kay and Allen, forcing him to leave for a series. But, you know, Chad Henney came in and put together a respectable drive thanks to uh, a penalty uh, by the Jaguars to set up... Uh, one of Kelsey's two touchdowns on the day. But that's going to be something to watch here this week going into next week. Because I'm sure Mahomes and the Chiefs are going to do everything possible to make sure he can play. To make sure that he is ready to be available on Sunday evening. But that takes away from Part of the greatness of Patrick Mahomes, because it's not just his remarkable accuracy, his arm strength. It's the fact that he can, you know, adjust on the fly. That a lot of uh, what he does is off-scripted plays. A lot of what he does uh, that makes him so great is when the play breaks down, unlike most quarterbacks, he doesn't panic. He doesn't get flustered and uh, just take the sack He's able to make uh, 
chicken salad out of chicken crap left and right. I mean, we look at them every week, and there's at least three or four throws that other quarterbacks can't make. That as the play's going on, you're like, what the hell is he doing with the backhanded shovel passes over a defensive's head? The sidearm throws, sometimes no-look throws that can annoy you. But more times than not, those plays work out. More times than not, he's able to make something out of those when the rest of the league can't do that. And he's made a career out of doing that. He's uh, what It's what's made him... You know, the best quarterback in this sport and made him the, uh, uh, probably the MVP this season. But if he can't move, that takes something away from uh, that Chiefs offense. That takes something away from his ability to adjust on the fly. And you saw that Bengals pass rush yesterday, how they played against the Buffalo Bills. They're going to be flying off the hook on Sunday night against this Chiefs team, even as improved and great as their offensive line has been this year. If you have a somewhat stationary Patrick Mahomes, that that is going to play into the Bengals' hands. A Bengals team that, I don't know if they're going to be able to play the disrespect card this Sunday, like they were able to play yesterday afternoon, because they heard all the talk. They heard everything that's gone on the last couple of weeks. They even said it after the game. They couldn't stand the fact that people were already talking about the third year in a row, a Chiefs-Bills playoff matchup like it was a formality, talking about a neutral site game like it was a formality, talking about ticket sales in Atlanta for Chiefs Bills like it was the Super Bowl or something. Like it was already set in stone. They came out there yesterday in Western New York and there's no other way around it. They kicked the Buffalo Bills ass. While you look at what happened to the Giants on Saturday night and say, oh, it's just a case of a team being overmatched by a far superior team. Yesterday was the case of a Bengals team that looked them, the Buffalo Bills right in the eye and said, we don't care about what you're dealing with personally. We don't care about the fact that you've become the nation's team over the last three weeks. We don't care that it's snowing. We don't care that we have three offensive linemen missing in this game. There is nothing stopping us from coming into your building and taking your chances at a Super Bowl away from you. The Bengals have felt disrespected for about three weeks now, felt that due to circumstances beyond their control, beyond anyone control, beyond anything we could even fathom happening. And thank God as we sit here today, DeMar Hamlin is alive and continuing to improve. But the Bengals, to a man, probably feel that yesterday afternoon's game should have taken place in Cincinnati rather than in Buffalo. And, you know, they gave it to the Buffalo Bills defense. A Buffalo Bills defense that, let's face it, has lacked a pass rush since losing Von Miller six weeks ago. When they lost him, 
Their pass rush has been non-existent. Their pass rush couldn't do anything against an offensive line that was full of a, a bunch of backups. And thanks to that, thanks to the ground being slowed up a bit with the snow up there, the Bengals were able to go in there and do seemingly anything they wanted offensively, especially run the football against the Bills and control this game from the onset. They came out and just marched down the field on back-to-back drives without hesitation. I think they maybe had one-third down in those first two drives combined. And let's face it, would have gone into the half by two up by two touchdowns if not for Matt Milano um, causing Jamar Chase to slightly juggle the football as he's falling to the ground out of bounds. If not for that, you could have turned the game off at halftime. And, you know, the Bills, nothing was easy for Buffalo yesterday. You look at the two scoring drives that they had. They were both 14 and 15 yards uh, respectively including the the first drive of the third quarter where they had the ball for seemingly half the quarter and could only muster three points out of it. Between that, the fact that they could not run the football to save their lives, their best uh, ground attack was Josh Allen calling his own number with a couple of QB sneaks. Singletary, Cook, they were non-existent in uh, this game. The Buffalo's defense was getting shredded. The, this shell defense that Leslie Frazier likes to run was getting picked apart early on in this game. And the Buffalo Bills, even in the slightest moments that they had, weren't able to take advantage. You know, They're down by 14 uh, early in the fourth quarter, and Gabe Davis has... What looked like it could have been a wide open uh, catch down the sidelines and dropped that. I don't know if a touchdown would have been scored on that that play, but he looked like he had a chance to get them right back in this game. And after that, it was good night, goodbye season for Buffalo all the way around. Now, the Bengals were just the better team, but unlike the Giants, It was a disappointing way for your year to end if you're uh, the Bills. It was a failure of a season for them because the Giants didn't have Super Bowl expectations. Buffalo and Dallas did. Buffalo and Dallas had a standard, had an expectation coming into this year that they had set based on moves they made in the offseason and based on previous year disappointments. And now... Now, the more years you go by with a group that has been intact for a couple of years, the harder it becomes because teams around you will get better. You don't know what quarterbacks could be coming and going in the AFC next year. You do know you're still going to have Mahomes. You're still going to have Burrow. The Bengals and Chiefs, they're not going anywhere. And at some point, thanks to the Josh Allen contract extension, the Bills going to be due, no point intended, for the Buffalo Bills. They're not going to be able to afford keeping this roster intact for the entirety of everybody's prime. Especially, you know, this offseason, they're going to have to probably have to pony up and pay Ed Oliver. That could cost you somebody in the secondary. That could cost you one of your wide receivers down the line. Now, how, unless you get lucky in the draft in the second or third round, how are you going to be able to afford a good running back? Because 
let's face it, Singletary and Cook are not great backs. They're probably complementary backs at best. And you do not want your ground game always being led by your quarterback, especially when he's taken the most hits in the NFL by any quarterback since the moment he's been drafted. I know he's a big boy, big, strong guy from Wyoming, but at some point, you're not young anymore. At some point, that does pay a toll. And if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, like my friend and mentor here at CSB, Brian Fishman, is, you got to be wondering today, is it ever going to happen with this group? Because you're letting years and opportunities pass by. And there's only so many opportunities that you get in the NFL. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen next week. You don't know what improvements other teams are going to make or who could leave you in free agency. So this was a bitter pill to swallow and a disappointing one if you're a Buffalo Bills fan. Going to take another break here, come back on the other side, turn my attention to the NBA. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Rather wild scene in LA on a Friday night. I don't know how many of you saw this live. Probably most people heard about it later on because it was late in the night on Friday night. But that was as crazy and wacky a scene as you're going to see at an NBA game. What happened between the Memphis Grizzlies and NFL Hall of Famer slash Fox Sports analyst Shannon Sharp, where Dylan Brooks is walking back to the Grizzlies bench uh, about a minute or two to go before halftime. And he starts jawing with someone. You change the cameras. Uh, this is during a commercial break. Change the camera angle, and you see a Shannon Sharp sitting front row at the Lakers game. He was there as an invited guest of LeBron and the Lakers, he starts drawing back and forth. There's expletives being thrown back and forth. Steven Adams starts marching toward Shannon Sharp. You see security and the players on the, the Grizzlies bench due to being a timeout come out there, try and uh, get between them. Even security's trying to push Shannon away at one point, take him to uh, a hallway to calm down. And he's yelling back and forth with John Morant's dad, T. I mean, it was just a weird, chaotic scene. Now, cooler heads would prevail. Shannon Sharp was allowed to go back to his seat at the start of halftime. And they showed later on that him and T. Morant uh, kind of hugged it out, talked it out like grown men should do because there's nothing in life that can't just be talked out between two grown-ass men, especially guys of their age. But that was just weird to see. And it's a bad look for Shannon because he's on TV every day of the week. And I know most people watch that show just to see what stupid things Skip Bayless is going to say uh, this time. But I'm sure a lot of people were watching this morning to see what Shannon Sharp's uh, 
reaction or explanation of that is. And that's something, you know, when you're a grown-ass man like him, you're a Hall of Famer, a public figure like that, you can't be doing, especially when you're an invited guest of the Lakers to that game. I'm, I don't know if he issued some kind of public apology or something, but it was a bad look by him. But the, I agree with what he's been saying on social media, saying on his TV show. For a team that's not won anything, this Memphis Grizzlies team runs their mouths a lot. See, they got in this war of words last year after their season came to an end with the, the Warriors, leading to you know people anticipating their matchups this coming season, uh, leading to an anticipated matchup on Christmas Day between the two sides. And for a team that, with the exception of Stephen Adams, nobody of any significance on there has made it to a conference finals. Nobody has even, I think, played in a finals game. They haven't been to the conference finals since John Morant was 13 years old. You would think that they, they're in the Western Conference Finals or in the championship round or a one or two seed every single year. No, I'm all for trash talk, but when you haven't won anything yet, Shut your mouth, go about your business, and earn something, win a title, and then you can brag. Then you can be braggadocious. Even though I get on the 2008 Boston Celtics, guys like Garnett, Kendrick Perkins, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Rondo, all of those guys acting like that team was some kind of dynasty off of one title. They at least won a championship. They have a right to talk trash. They have a right to uh, talk smack. They, they backed it up. This Grizzlies team has done nothing yet. Go out there. Beat you know the Nuggets in a postseason series. Nuggets have been one of the best teams in the sport this year. Just having a nine-game win streak end last night, albeit uh, Jokic didn't play. Go out there, win a series against Phoenix or Golden State, both who look somewhat beatable right now with some of the injuries that they've had to deal with on uh, this team so far this year. Get to a Western Conference Final. Hell, you know, get to an NBA Final, something that I don't think we've ever even considered or contemplated for the Memphis Grizzlies before you talk trash and are wanting to get in altercations with celebrities and professional Hall of Famers um, on the, the sidelines at your games. Really, they have become a very annoying, unlikable team, even for as great and as fun as John Morant is to watch. I really cannot stand that uh, Memphis Grizzlies team right now. And another team I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to have a dislike for is the Los Angeles Clippers. You know, one of my biggest bugaboos in the NBA is this whole maintenance thing, this load management crap that began thanks to the San Antonio Spurs about eight, nine years ago. Really, to me, the beginning of it was that game years back in Miami. It was a game on TNT where Popovich sent Duncan Parker and Ginobili home before a primetime matchup in Miami against the LeBron James uh, Miami Heat squad and almost beat them, uh, came within a whisker of doing so in overtime. But 
it it gets taken too far sometimes. I mean, if a guy is really hurt, if a guy is dealing with an injury, that's one thing. But if, if you're just dealing with general soreness, go out there. Try and man up 30 minutes as long as it's not going to hinder uh, your long-term health and hinder your team. You know, a lot of people expected coming into this year that the Los Angeles Clippers were going to be a title contender. We're going to be one of the top teams in the West. And I never saw that when you consider how injury filled, injury riddled that team is. First off, they go get John Wall, who hasn't played in like two years, seems to only play every two weeks these days. He's now dealing with another injury. They're without Luke Kennard. And their stars have rarely played for them this year. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have seemingly been on a baseball pitcher schedule when it comes to the Clippers schedule here. And they have played eight sets of back-to-backs uh, so far this year. Paul George has played in both ends of, the, of those back-to-backs five of the eight times. And he's dealt with some... Injuries here, some knee and hand injuries along the way. Missed, you know, chunks of games. Only played in 33 of the uh, Clippers' 49 games. But Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard has played in 25 of their 49 games. Together, those two have only played in 16 games together. And the Clippers are 10-6 and six in those games. You know, look at what happened with the Brooklyn Nets last year. When they had Kyrie for reasons, whether you want to say beyond his control or within his control, depending on how you view his decision-making. Kyrie was unavailable for the Nets in home games until March. Well, this Clippers team, they're 10-15 and 15 without Kawhi Leonard. They're 6-10 and 10 in games without Paul George. They're 15 and 18 in games in which both of them don't play, and the two of them have only been on the court together for just below 50% of the minutes that the Clippers have played this year. How is that team building any continuity? How are they building any sort of cohesiveness that can set them up well for the postseason? Like I, I never understood the love affair people had with the Clippers coming into this year, going uh, as possibly the top contender to dethrone the Warriors out West. And I still don't, uh, based on how in and out Kawhi and Paul George have been. Kawhi hasn't even played any of the both ends of the back-to-back. He played one game, and then the next night he's sitting and resting when listen I know he's coming off of a missing all of last year to due to a torn ACL but it's we're 18 months removed from that surgery a and b it seems like unless he's feeling 100% unless he's at 100% full gear he does not want to play through any soreness or any you know tiredness and that, quite frankly, if I were a Clippers fan, I would be annoyed to all ends about how he handles it. Listen, if, if he's dealing with s- s- some real pain, that's one thing. But if he's sitting out just based on choice, that, quite frankly, is something 
that would not sit well with me if I were a fan of the Los Angeles Clippers. And mentioning the Warriors a second ago, that was a loss you just cannot have. What they had last night against the Brooklyn Nets. You know, it's it's one thing for the Portland Trailblazers to blow a 25-point lead at home to the Los Angeles Lakers. That That's an embarrassing loss when you consider the lack of shooting that the Lakers have and the fact that up until this coming week, they've been without Anthony Davis for a while. But for the Golden State Warriors, who had everybody healthy last night, had all of their uh, big four available to play, had Curry, had Thompson, had uh, Draymond Green, had Poole, had um, uh, Andrew Wiggins, had all of their guys uh, available. We're getting um, good production from guys like Kaminga off the bench. To blow a double-digit lead to the Brooklyn Nets at home last night is not a loss you can have. I mean, you were able to get away with it because no one was watching the game uh, due to everybody being out in Santa Clara at the Niners game. But the Nets are still without Durant for who knows how long. You have Ben Simmons out there who's scared to death to shoot the basketball, even if he's right under the rim. And you're not letting Nicholas Claxton be the second best player for the Brooklyn Nets out there while Kyrie's putting up 36. And listen, I give the Nets credit because they did what I asked for last week, go 2-2 two and two on this West Coast swing. Even uh, no, one of those two losses they had, they were playing without Kyrie Irving. But the Warriors, uh, I just, I don't understand them. I First off, I, I don't get how they can be so bad uh, on the road. And how they can have these late-game meltdowns, especially when arguably the best player on either team was unavailable uh, to play last night. And before I take a break here, you know, the, the, the Knicks, the, if you're a Knicks fan, this is starting to become panic time because this is really becoming worrisome what they're doing right now. They just lost their fourth game in a row last night to the Toronto Raptors. And in the last week, you look at this team and you're you're saying to yourself, even when we build the slightest bit of momentum, even when they have a winning streak, they follow that back up with a four-game losing streak. They had that four-game win streak, they fall right back up with a four-game losing streak and have put themselves in the same predicament, that same middle-of-the-pack trying to avoid the play-in game situation that they were in two weeks ago. And the the problem is clear and obvious to me. It's not any one specific player, although you do get some moments of immaturity and frustration still from Julius Randle. At least he's not taking it out on the fans this time. But the problem is the head coach. It's very clear and apparent to me with how he is running these guys into the ground. And look at look at last Wednesday on Friday, for example. He was forced into playing 10 guys only because of um, Mitchell Robinson going out early in the first half uh, with a, a thumb injury that now he's going to miss three weeks for. And now it's going to lead to more playing time for a guy like Jericho Sims. 
but the Knicks never led against Washington in a game where the Wizards were getting uh, Bradley Beal back for the first time in a, a couple of weeks, and it he and the Wizards look like he didn't miss a beat. And that's a team that clearly looks like they're heading toward the lottery. Then on Friday night, you go to Atlanta. And while Trey Young and Devontae Murray weren't having overly great shooting nights, they did enough to take advantage of a next team that rotation was being run into the ground. And the stat sheet will tell you they played 11 guys. Don't be fooled by it. It was a nine-man rotation. Two two guys, including Ryan Archie Diakono, played one minute. I mean, it, it, it is becoming shameful, the fact that Thibodeau, I, I know these guys are young, but he's just running them right into the ground. I and mean, All of these guys are averaging anywhere between 33 and 41 minutes a, ga- a game on a given night the last couple of weeks. That can't continue. You got to get your bench guys, you know, each playing, you know, 15 minutes uh, a night. You've got to give these guys a little bit of a burn here. At some point, it's going to wear on these guys, especially when you play more back-to-backs as the season goes on, especially as you get to March and April, where you want to be at your best. You want to be fine-tuning things as you hopefully make it into the playoffs. You don't want to be having to scratch and claw to avoid the play-in scenario. You don't want to have to be in a battle, and that's what it looks like right now, where you're battling the likes of Cleveland and Miami to avoid uh, playing a do-or-die one-game scenario at Madison Square Garden. Because we've seen how, you know, Trey Young, he rises his game to the occasion at MSG. He loves coming in there and shoving it right up Nick fans' you-know-whats. Or going up against uh, you know gritty teams like the Pacers or the Bulls. And you can't even rule out Toronto, who has handed it to the Knicks uh, both in Toronto and in MSG in the last 10 days. Thibodeau has got to adjust these rotations. Otherwise, this team is going to be burned out by the time we get to March. No matter what kind of trade they possibly make at the trade deadline coming up in the next couple of weeks, the Knicks have got to lengthen the rotation. They, Or at the very minimum, if you're going to keep it to 10 guys, pull back on the minutes on Brunson, Randall, and R.J. Barrett, and give some of these other guys more minutes off the bench. Quickly has shown that he can uh, be a quality option. Obi Toppin, give him some more minutes. Something to avoid these guys, even for them being all in their mid to late 20s. They will get burnt out if you keep trying to track meet race them right into the ground, especially with how aggressive you expect them to play on defense. All right, I'm going to come back after one final break here and talk about something that every year when it comes up, it annoys the living hell out of me. And of course, I'm talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Continue keeping it sports with 
M3. I'll be back. You know, we are 14 hours removed from the end of Cowboys Niners, and I'm still trying to figure out what the hell Mike McCarthy was thinking at the end of that game last night. The play where he had Ezekiel Elliott lined up as the center with nine guys out wide. Ezekiel Elliott got run over like a Mack truck hitting a human being. He looked like a small child with how he just got pulled over. And then on that little dump-off pass by Dak, the the receiver just got blown up by the 49ers. 49ers almost looking at them like, how dare you even try to run something like that against us? I, I, I still don't know what the hell it was. Was it going to be the whole pitchy-pitchy woo-woo thing where you're going for the uh, uh, Stanford band play? Whatever it was, but the fact that somebody, whether it's Mike McCarthy, whether it was Kellen Moore, somebody on that Dallas sideline thought it was a smart idea to have Ezekiel Elliott be ineligible and line up as the center on that play shows you how you know, out of touch, how clueless the Cowboys are. And thank God we really do not need to talk about them much for the next you know, month or two. Until we get to the offseason and see what they do in free agency in the draft. Because that play, no one else was going to try and do something like that uh, this weekend. But the Dallas Cowboys out Dallas Cowboys themselves in what was as dumb a play as you're ever going to see. Now speaking of dumb, and maybe I shouldn't call it dumb. Because people who are more educated, more intelligent than me, or at least they are given credit as being, the Baseball Writers of America will be unveiling their votes tomorrow for the Hall of Fame ballot of 2023. We already know one person that's going in, and that is Fred McGriff, who was elected by by the contemporary area Era committee. They have these committees every year that go back and relook at guys from the past that fell off the ballot in recent years. And you know, you had some names on there like Don Mattingly, Keith Hernandez, and uh, I think some of the steroid guys were on there as well. But Fred McGriff was the only one that was voted by that committee. Well, now you have the larger scale thing of things where the baseball writers, some like 450 of them, uh, their ballot will be released tomorrow. And remember, to get Hall of Fame induction, you have to receive 75% of the vote. And you can only be on the ballot for 10 years and have to maintain at least 5% to remain on for the next year. And after 10 years, if you're not voted in, you fall off the ballot. And there's a, every year, there's always, whether you want to call it some stupidity 
or things that I disagree with when it comes to some of these inductions, whether it be two years ago, Larry Walker, that felt like a sympathy vote in what was his final year. When you got to have buddies of his going on MLB Network campaigning for a guy to get into the Hall of Fame on his 10th and final year uh, on the, the ballot, that to me should... T- tell you all you need to know. I mean, a guy being on the ballot for 10 years and he's not uh, voted in, even though in some cases, as I will get to, you question what the writers are, are thinking. Larry Walker, to me, was more of a compiler, if anything else. Same goes with Craig Biggio. I never, even when he got 3,000 hits, never thought of that guy as a Hall of Famer. And I think a lot of people out there felt the same way. It, all of a sudden, he gets three th- his 3,000th hit back in 2008, 2007. And the next day, people started talking about him as a Hall of Famer. People, before that, people saying, oh, good player, been around for a while. Then all of a sudden, we find out he has 3,000 hits. It's like, oh, he's a Hall of Famer. And then, of course, the hypocrisy of last year with David Ortiz being the only player voted in. And all of the other steroid guys whether it be Bonds and Clemens falling off the ballot, A-Rod not getting much, if any, support in his uh, first time on the ballot, Sosa, McGuire, all of them falling uh, by the wayside. But David Ortiz, who was on the same list as A-Rod, Sosa, and Ramirez uh, from that 03 drug test, for some reason, we give him a free pass. Now, of course, they're going to insult my intelligence They're going or the intelligence I like to think I have when it comes to baseball because I've said it before, baseball is my number one passion. Baseball is the, the sport I love and have rooted for the most uh, in my sports fandom since I started watching sports when I was about seven years old. Uh, I have been... As much as I love the Jets, I, I will be just like them, a diehard Yankee fan till the day I am no longer breathing or walking on the face of this earth. But these baseball writers do a lot of quirky things. Just talked about some of them. I, for the life of me, do not understand the love affair they have recently had with Scott Rowland. I mean, this is a guy that... When he was first on the ballot back in 2018, he only got 10%, 10.2%. And since then, each year, I see him rising slowly and steadily from 10.2 up to 17.2, then 35.3, then 52.9, and then last year his highest is 63.2. And Like, am I missing something? Has his numbers increased over time? If anything, you look at his numbers, and while he was a good player, I don't want to make him out to be a scrub, his numbers do not scream off the page, Hall of Famer. If anything, his numbers look worse as we get further away from his career. I know he was a six-time gold glover, but his defense was not overwhelming enough to ignore the fact that he was a middle-of-the-pack offensive player at what is considered a power position, third base. Now, if he, he was doing what he did at second base, I'd say, all right, you have an argument. You have something that you can yell about. You can ha- have something that you can say, 
all right, this guy's a Hall, hall of Famer. He's he's getting overlooked um, defensively. We'll ignore his offensive usage. But to put a third baseman that had barely over 2,000 hits, barely over 300 home runs, and a slugging percentage of below 500 in the Hall of Fame, and it's not like he did all of that in a 10-year span. People, he did it in a 17-year span. All right? His, he averaged like 15, 16 home runs a year. Only had a couple of 20 home run seasons. He was in the top 10 of the MVP race like one time over the course of his entire career. And yet there's been this love affair by these writers the last couple of years that I just don't quite get, especially when you have a guy on the ballot that was a far superior player that I don't get the hate, if you want to call it hate, the lack of support. How the hell is Jeff Kent not in the Hall of Fame yet? How are we entering year 10 of him being on the Hall of Fame ballot and him not getting in? I mean, I've gone through each of the years that he w- he's been on the ballot. And you've had at most four players get in. And I look through the ballot. There are not 10 players better than him on the ballot. For some reason, Omar Vizquel gets more votes than him. Scott Rowland, as I said, has been sliding up past him. Even Todd Helton is getting more than him. And Todd Helton, there is no way you can put Todd Helton in the Hall of Fame. I'm sorry. I don't give a damn that he was at 52% last year of the player's vote. He had a 17-year career where only about five of those years were great. And let's not forget, that entire 17-year career, he played as a Rocky, where about half of his games were played in Coors Field. He played... Over the course of his career, he played 2,247 games um, and 11,000 or 1,141 of those games were played in Coors Field. You look at his home road splits, his batting average at home is 60 points higher than it was on the road. His on base percentage at home is 60 points higher than it was on the road. His slugging percentage at home is 140 points higher than it was on the road. I'm sorry. You cannot have that overwhelming a difference between playing at Coors Field to playing on the road and be considered a Hall of Famer. And let's not forget, look at this guy. He was in the top 10 in the MVP only three times. He made the all-star team only five times. Whereas you look at Jeff Kent. Yeah, he made the all-star game five times, but he was the MVP in 2000. He was a huge part of the Giants getting to the World Series in 2002. And he has that about nine-year span of being a dominant offensive player in this sport. From 97 to 05, over that span, he had eight years of over 100 RBIs. And in seven of 
of those seasons, he had 25 or more home runs. And he's doing that as a second baseman. And remember, it's not like he had the DH to fall back on. He, The National League didn't have the DH until, um, what, last year, the year before? And he did all of that as a second baseman. And even though he wasn't, you know, a perennial gold glove winner, people that I listen to, people that I respect in the business, such as the the legend himself, the great Christopher Mad Dog Russo, will tell you that he watched every game of this guy's career and he was not a hindrance at second base or when it came to his time during the San Francisco Giants. I just, it, for the life of me, I don't understand how last year, his ninth year on the ballot was his highest percentage he ever got at 32.4, and yet players that he was far superior than the likes of Scott Rowland and Todd Helton are getting much more support than him. Did he do something illegal that we don't know about? Did he hit a woman? Did he, he steal or harm a child? Did he pull a Michael Vick and harm animals? I, I, I really, someone needs to tell me that one of these writers, if, if, you see this podcast, you see the number on the screen, feel free to call in sometime and tell me, why is Jeff Kent not in the Hall of Fame? Why are the your constituents, why are you, uh, your fellow writers not voting for this guy? Because he is as a dominant an offensive second baseman we ever saw, and yet he still can't get any support for the Hall of Fame, and it baffles me. I'll never understand it, how he's not in the Hall of Fame Yet, it looks like Roland's going to go in tomorrow. Todd Helton's going to get more love tomorrow. Craig Biggio, who was the biggest compiler in the history of Major League Baseball, is already in. Yet, Jeff Kent can't get in. And, of course, there's other things to watch for in tomorrow's ballot. How's A-Rod going to do? How's the sign-stealing scandal going to affect Carlos Beltran? Because he's in his first time on the ballot. Look. It seems like everybody um, but him has come out on the positive end of things. Alex Cora got a job back in uh, baseball. A.J. Hinch got a job back as a a manager. I'm sure at some point uh, the Houston Astros uh, GM Jeff Lunau uh, might, you know, pop up back somewhere, uh, even as unlikable a human being as he turned out to be. The players, nobody got suspended. Only Carlos Beltran got really punished from that, and we'll see if the writers hold it against him. But I, I will go to my grave, and I will never understand the hatred by these writers by Jeff Kent. Now, between... Now and the next time I talk to you guys, we have Championship Sunday. And the biggest question looming, Patrick Mahomes' health. How is he going to deal with the high ankle sprain going up against this Bengals team and that the pass rush that they exhibited yesterday against Buffalo? If it's anywhere near that this Sunday in KC, they could be in a lot of trouble. And th- this Bengals team has a controlled cockiness to them but a confident swagger that you know they did it last year. They went in there. Can history repeat itself? But Giants fans, we don't agree on much, but I'm going to be right there alongside you guys rooting 
against the 49ers this coming Sunday because Nick Sirianni has become a very, very unlikable figure in a extremely short amount of time. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, January 23rd, 2023. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, happy, healthy week. Help live it up, people. We only have one life, as I always say. Just do it in a safe manner. And I'll talk to you guys again, same time, next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.